This podcast is brought to you by Infinite Resources, a local staffing agency connecting diverse job candidates and central Iowa companies. Amplified. Welcome, everybody, to the Amner Martinez podcast. My name is Amner Martinez, and this is a new episode with the now uh, candidate for U.S. Congress, Melissa Vine. When we spoke with her several weeks, not too long ago, but a couple of weeks ago, she she still hadn't announced. So if you're curious about if you want to vote for her or not, this might be the great, uh, great podcast for you to listen because she tells about her work only and uh, why she does what she does. She works for, uh, she's the director of the Beacon, uh, executive director of the Beacon Um and she tells about her work. Uh, uh, she tells the stories about the woman that, that she's helping. And um, so I just think this is a very interesting podcast because I've interviewed some politicians in the past. Uh, I interviewed the mayor of Long Beach um, a few years ago. Uh, the now mayor, uh, Connie Bozen, and uh, other candidates like uh, Josh uh, Mandelbaum and and usually politicians are um, uh, always on the politician vibe. And like, uh, uh, but this conversation with Melissa, she's not. Uh, she's just being herself. So this is, uh, I think this is a good, interesting, if, you're, um, if you are uh, going to vote for her for U.S. Congress. So we're very happy for her. She's worked really hard. And I'm sure we're going to see her again here on the podcast as a candidate. Melissa Vine for U.S. Congress. So share this podcast, comment on it, give us your thoughts, and uh, hope you guys like it. Um, this is Melissa Vine with uh, on the Abner Martinez podcast. So thank you for joining me, Melissa. Happy uh, to be here. I know. we've been So I've, uh, you did a podcast with Shaima a couple years ago, and I've been wanting to talk to you. Um, and I, you know, I saw you doing a presentation. I was like, it's time. <laughs> So because your type of work is you're working with women that are in a work release program or what what is the beacon? Yeah, so the beacon is a nonprofit that provides housing and programming for women who are coming out of trauma. Mm -hmm. So it looks like um, getting them safely housed and then they work with a case manager and that case manager connects them to resources. A lot of them we have in-house to reduce the transportation barrier. So things like mental health counseling, substance use recovery meetings, financial literacy coaching, career development, socio-emotional learning courses, social activities, health education, all of the things to address women's holistic health so that they can earn a livable, sustainable wage, remain stably housed, um, you know. But you, you called it, they're, they're coming out of trauma. Yeah, so, so but but in the public is jail, prison, right? Most of our clients are coming directly from the Mitchellville Women's Prison. Prison. Okay, okay, okay. Historically. That's that's where most of our and clients are. And the beacon have come is from. trying to change the the process is trying to is there like a system shift that the beacon is trying to do cuz I know on, the, on your position you said it cost mm -hmm. how much does it cost the state? So and how much does a beacon cost? Well, here's what's happening is most of the women that are in prison. So, uh, well, uh, over half of folks who are in prison are there for a nonviolent offense. So we're looking at a lot of folks who have substance use disorders with co-occurring mental illness. And a, 
a lot of them have grown up in generational poverty. They're from communities of color. Mm -hmm. And so they might have a disability. So there are all these contributing factors to why they're struggling with substances and why that may have led them to homelessness or incarceration that really don't have anything to do with them being criminals, so mm. to speak. Mm -hmm. It's just more folks who are in untenable living circumstances and looking for ways to survive and cope. So after I'd been at the Beacon for about a year, I started asking questions like, why are we incarcerating these women? Mm -hmm. Like, what would it look like to offer support mm -hmm. instead of punishment? There are 9 million incarcerated people in the world, and Amner, 2 million of them are in the United States. Mm. We don't have more criminals in the United States. We have created the prison industrial complex, and there are very wealthy and powerful people who benefit mm -hmm. from the prison system. Mm -hmm. They use humans as capital to build their organizations, to build their own wealth and power. It's been uh, privatized. So like there's prisons that are private yep. prisons. But even the ones that aren't private, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're getting big contracts to do healthcare, food service, mm -hmm. sanitation services within those prisons, right? Mm -hmm. And so there are companies that benefit from that. They can donate to political campaigns, whatever that might look like to keep that system going, to mm -hmm. keep that power and money flowing at the top. And so I can't do anything about that. I'm not a billionaire that has the power to change that system from the top. Right. But what we can do is create an alternative system on the ground that when a judge or a lawyer is looking one of our clients in the face and sees this single mom mm -hmm. with a substance use disorder and a lifetime of complex trauma and is thinking, I really don't want to send her to jail. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Her kids are going to go in foster care. Her debt's going to get even bigger. Her trauma's going to grow. She's going to be isolated from resources. But they just don't really have another option. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to get in, and I wanted to have conversations around what would it look like to intercept before these clients spent time in jail. Mm. And the crazy thing, like you mentioned before, is the beacon is $26 a night for housing and programming. All those services I mentioned. Prison in Iowa... Last year is $106 a night per person of taxpayer money. Mm. So we're, it's four times the cost to further traumatize these folks who right, right. desperately deserve support. Mm. Um, and so so I was having trouble getting the conversations, get, getting a seat at the tables where the conversations could happen. So I sort of last minute took the LSAT as sort of a Hail Mary, um, so to speak, and um, it went well. So Drake Law offered me a full ride to law school. Yes. Uh -huh. And I'll graduate in May. I'm almost done. Um, but having access to those connections and that knowledge of the criminal justice system uh -huh. has enabled us to get into the seats where we needed to have those important conversations, as well as finding sources of funding. So we became the first nationally certified recovery house in um, Iowa. Uh -huh. And we have also um, pursued some diversified income streams so that we can scale the nonprofit um, more quickly. Um, and more effectively and in a sustainable way. Um, and so, yeah, just this summer, we actually launched Pope County's first and only pretrial jail diversion. Tell me about that. Yeah. What's uh, what So I have staff going into the jail. Okay. And they meet with women who have just been arrested. And so instead of sitting in jail and waiting for their court date or instead of um, being released to a home environment that may not be safe or, or um, sustainable, they can work with the Beacon. We can provide housing if they need it. They do all of our programming. They can opt, the, the, the arrested person can opt to go to the Beacon instead of waiting for their... Yes. Oh. So then when their court date arrives, 
their attorney can say to the judge, my client is clean and sober. They're going to counseling. They're working with the beak and they're paying rent. They're um, increasing their um, uh, wealth. They're making more money. They're reducing their debt. They've got their kids. They're contributing to the community. They're making friends. They're doing well. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a, a way to prove yourself, right? That I can live in the community in a healthy way that that um, contributes to society. Yeah. Um, and so then, of course, like, you know, I would think most judges would have a level of empathy to say, hey, this is, or, or even just um, rationalism to say, hey, this is working. Right, right, And right, it's right. saving the state a lot of money, right? And so let's keep doing this. Let's have them get probation at the beacon uh-huh. instead of getting a jail <clears throat> sentence or a prison sentence, which is going to tear the family apart and re-traumatize. And this is mostly for uh, people that are nonviolent uh, mm-hmm. offenders or like drug uh, right. offenses. Yeah. Yeah. These aren't criminals. Uh-huh. These aren't criminals. These are just people that need support. So you're... you're uh, so you say you're doing fundraising. So part of your job is to fundraise for the beacon, right? So like your your message is telling people, telling them by the numbers, right? Like this is your taxpayer money. Uh huh. How does how did you come up with that approach, and like how is it being received? I just think that most people in Des Moines aren't really talking about this. And one thing I'm really proud of with the Beacon is that we have created momentum around this conversation. Uh-huh. That there are a lot of folks who are incarcerated. Um, that really are are becoming worse off by being incarcerated uh-huh. and actually really draining our system of money uh-huh. and of resources, right? Like think about our foster care system and how thinly spread those workers are and, and you know, DHS and all of these services and, and healthcare systems for lower income folks, all of these systems that are stretched so thin and there's got to be a better way. Right to support these folks, right? And and, and and the thing is, some people say, oh, well, if you do more social services, you, um, we can't afford that, right? We, we can't spend, we can't pour more money into this. I'm like, no, this actually, this actually saves a lot of money yeah. uh, to, to invest in something like the Beacon as opposed to just letting the systems run their course. So $106 compared to $26. $26. So, mm-hmm. uh, so are you also part of the, uh, or is there any work that you do like to, um, to lobby or legis- for legislation? Um, we have not gotten into that space yet. Um, um, wh- what are the most offenders? Like, what are they? What is it that they're using? Is it uh, methamphetamine? Is it marijuana? Is it alcohol? So most folks with a criminal charge um, are looking at, yes, the, the methamphetamines or potentially a, a low-level offense that was related to substance use disorder. So perhaps... Um, they needed to get access to drugs, and so maybe they forged a signature on a check, or they um, maybe they stole something, or maybe they were selling something, uh-huh. right? And for a lot of times when it's a woman, we also have to talk about the intersection of domestic violence because we have a lot of folks who are in a domestic violence relationship, and it's either, hey, you go meet this guy at this corner to exchange this um, drug for money, uh-huh. or you're going to get beat up, right? right. Um, or just folks who are using substances as a way to cope with domestic violence and cope with poverty and all of the stress that comes with that um, and then become addicted and lack the funds to support that addiction. So they do what they know how to do, uh-huh. right? Um, my own story, uh, when I um, was in poverty, so I went from being a 
wealthy business owner, married, four little boys. They were nine and under. And we were doing great. Life was good, right? Except that I was in domestic violence. Uh And so as that increased over time, eventually the cognitive dissonance in my head between what I believed to be true, because I at that time believed that divorce was wrong, that it would be sinful for me to get divorced. But I also was experiencing an increase in stress and my, to the point where I was becoming ill and I didn't really know why. Uh-huh. But both of those things could not both exist in my head any longer. So I had this implosion and I had to choose what side. They couldn't both stay there. And so I chose to get divorced and overnight went from being wealthy to literally zero dollars in my bank account, four boys, nine and under. I'd been a stay-at-home mom, so I had no job, no resume. Um, and so I started checking groceries for $8.50 an hour and so here I am checking groceries and people are coming through the checkout line and they're like, wait, you were just on stage getting a chamber award uh-huh. a couple of weeks ago and now you're checking my groceries. Uh-huh. What's going on? Right. Um, and so I got a full time job. I finished a master's in mental health counseling, worked as a therapist. I started two businesses and sold them and had all these kinds of side hustles going on um, just to get out of poverty and then eventually began uh, running the beacon. Um, and so now we're, you know, we're doing great. And my kids are, they're becoming adults now. They're doing absolutely amazing. So, so proud of them. Um, but the, the thing is when I hit bottom, I, my bottom looked very different than when the women at the beacon hit bottom. Uh Right. So I had access to resources and skills because I had grown up in a in a white middle upper class home. So I already had a high credit score. Uh-huh. Uh, I already owned a car. I owned nice clothing. I knew how to talk to people, right? Uh, that if I needed money, so I could walk into a bank, present a business plan, present financial projections, uh-huh. and talk about what I needed and feel confident in doing that. Um, whereas folks that have not been in those spaces or don't know how to access those spaces wouldn't necessarily have that um, skill set. And it's not that I'm, it's not that I made better choices. I just had better choices in front of me. Right, right, right. So the the beacon was kind of is that one of those jobs that kind of found you? And, yeah. Uh, and it was kind of meant to be. Is that yeah, because I love business, but for me, I wanted something that had passion with it. And I'm such a passionate person, so energetic and so driven. Mm-hmm. But I wanted what I did every day to have some mission behind it. And and I have that now. So now I run the beacon as if it's a business, right? Uh-huh. We pay people well. We treat them well. They have good benefits. We create a positive environment. It's rare to find that in nonprofit. Mm. People are typically underpaid, right. over overworked, high burnout, high turnover. Um, we have almost no turnover at the beacon. Oh. Um it's uh, we've been hiring a ton lately, but not it's it's mostly new or positions. Yeah. Yeah. Or did you, yeah. So tell us about the beginning. So it's you have a house or how many houses? Yeah. Do you have? So we have a house in Sherman Hill um, which can hold up to 34 women. Mm-hmm. And the, it's more of like an apartment building. And then we're adding um, two more buildings here, uh, hopefully by the end of the year. One of them will be apartment buildings for folks who are further along in our program and would like a little bit more autonomy and don't mm. need quite as much 24-hour support. And then uh, there'll be another um, building as well for folks who are kind of in the middle of the program, maybe in need kind of a moderate level of support. So eventually we'd like to build out a continuum of care. So there'll be something for women, uh, women no matter where mm-hmm. she is in that journey, whether she needs emergency shelter, I need a place tonight, no barriers, come as you are or the woman who just needs affordable housing that will take someone that has a felony charge, you know. Tell us a little bit, tell me a little bit about like your, 
what are those houses in there without getting you know to detail but like what's your day look like do you go into the houses do you talk to them uh they live there right so yeah. they, they live there they how long can they live there just kind of yeah so as take we take us in there for a minute yeah we're kind of we're transitioning right now from being transitional housing to being more permanent housing which means that there'll be no time limit on how long women can stay oh. because in my mind uh some women need six months but someone women might need 10 years oh. some women might need the rest of their life I would rather them stay stably housed if they continue to need those supportive services mm -hmm. than to see them cycle through the criminal justice system and the healthcare system and the beacon right like just keep them housed and if relapse, it's working right yeah so one of the stories yeah. on on the beacon website um and maybe you can tell a little bit about her story i mean she told that it's on the website but like she went 15 years clean and then she relapsed after you going through mm -hmm. some some trauma so you're right like it some people need just three months yeah. six months and some people need can you talk a little bit about like that success story and also like the relapse rates or like or the what are the rates that or people success kind of rates? Fall? yeah 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 success and also like fail like how many women in this case relapse and go back into so we have done a lot of work around our programming right and so the better our programming gets and the more higher quality of staff that we get the less um recidivism the lower our recidivism rates go uh -huh. and so um we are seeing more and more clients graduate and continue to be successful. The tricky piece is when they historically, when they've completed our program, they're kind of out on their own. Uh -huh. So this year by adding additional buildings that can provide another level of support for a longer period of time, as well as we continue, we've got grant funding now to do case management for three years post graduation. So they can continue to get support. Even if they go out and live on their own somewhere, they'll get mobile case management. So uh -huh. that's going to really help for us to keep tr track of clients and for them to continue to feel supported. Because feedback we were getting was, hey, I graduated, I'm doing great. And then I moved to my own place. I'm surrounded by people who are using drugs. I'm yeah. isolated from my support system. And it's like, oh gosh, we can't do that to people. Uh -huh. um, and they're just not great affordable housing right now. We know that crisis is only getting worse. And so the more we can provide supportive housing for folks, I think the better that we'll see those success rates be. Um, and then, yes, yeah, so here, here's one tricky piece is that the old school social work model is punitive, is I'm going to discipline you into being a good person. I'm going to punish you into being a good person. That might shake people up a little bit and help them to like get on track for a while. Uh -huh. But have they built a foundation where they believe they are loved just because they're human and not uh -huh. because of their performance? Yeah. Have they built into themselves, I am a human with dignity regardless of what my past has looked like? And do they feel like they have the supportive skills and the knowledge that when they're struggling with those stressful situations or trauma knocks on their door again, they are grounded and ready to do battle with it, right? And they're coming from a healed place. So if you see someone who has been through some sort of treatment and they're like, oh, I'm feeling good, but they haven't really dug deep, they've been snorkeling instead of scuba diving on uh -huh. their mental health. Uh -huh. When those tough times come, it's a little easier to tip them over. Whereas if they've done that deep work that we're really focusing on at the beacon, that storm isn't gonna knock them over as easily. How? How do you maintain this level of energy? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you I why I'm asking. I do. You know, let me tell you why I asked this question is because, like, 
this type of work must be very um you know emotional right like sure. you see people succeed oh. and you see them fail and when you see them fail it must be heartbreaking it is, it is. so like where do you get the the that energy mm. like that that to like keep going and do it every day sure because it's it's got to be draining it's it's actually not at this point um first of all I wake every day with a ton of gratitude. Okay. I feel like I have a second chance at life. I never dreamed my life would be this incredible. I'd have this much freedom and be able to do this many amazing things in the world when I yeah. felt very trapped and confined to the home, right? And um, so first of all, there, there's it comes from gratitude. Uh -huh. And second of all, having boundaries around, we are here to facilitate healing and we will provide an environment that, that shows you maximum level of dignity and support, uh -huh. but we are not responsible for your healing and growth. Uh -huh. We're just here to shine a light on, on the path, shine that beacon, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> See what I did there. Uh -huh. um, yes. and, <laughs> and, and then they walk on it, mm. right? And if whether or not they choose to walk on it, I can't carry that on my back and my staff cannot uh -huh. carry that on their back as a win or a lose for them. So you also have to do some like uh, mm -hmm. expectations or what do you like yeah. self-care of like, yes. you can't go that far. You have to have boundaries, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like all we're responsible for is providing an environment where people can grow, Yeah. but they are the ones that do the growth. Yeah. That's not us. And that also means that they get the credit when they do the growth. Right. Right. Yeah. Because it's also easy in nonprofit work to hmm, sort of need to be needed which can be unhealthy. And I think a lot of people that work in nonprofit are drawn to it because they have unresolved trauma themselves. And then they're like, ooh, this is a place where I'm getting filled up. It's feeding me. Mm -hmm. And I can't have people on our team that are at the beacon for that purpose uh -huh. because they will get burnt out fast. Because like you said, when people fall off the wagon, when people struggle, they will put that on them as if they uh -huh. were responsible yeah. for it, right? Yes, that's gotta be tough. Cause like if, I f if you fail, I feel like I failed you. Uh, and that has to be, you know, there's some businesses that you gotta like learn how to yeah. dust it off and, and well, so and part of it is knowing my staff is, uh, well-trained mm -hmm. and in evidence-based practice, trauma-informed care, strengths-based approach, equity-centered care. And we regularly do more and more training and support for each other. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I trust that they are providing top-notch care to our clients. Mm -hmm. So when someone struggles I'm not, my first thought isn't, oh, you know, what did we do wrong? Or what did that case manager say to them that set them off or didn't yeah. do or whatever? Now, certainly we can always be learning and growing. We love getting feedback from our clients on how uh -huh. we can improve our program 100%. Um, but, but yeah, it, it can't be honest. Can you tell when somebody is like, they're going to make it or they're not going to make it? Like, you, you get surprised a lot. You right? get surprised. Yeah. Yeah. And most, most of the women, when they come into the beacon, there's, there's two typical stances. Most of them have a very closed off stance. No eye can contact, shuffling, head down. Um, they don't trust people, right? And uh -huh. they've been in circles where they were treated in condescending ways or people didn't trust them, right? We assume that we can trust everyone that comes through our door. And uh -huh. we tell them that. I'm going to trust you. If you break my trust, we'll have to rebuild that. But I'm going to trust you from the get-go that right, you know right. best what you need yeah. and that we're just here to support you, right? And then other clients come in and they attach quickly. These are both trauma responses. Uh -huh. They get super open, overshare on day one to anyone they can talk to, and they can, they make attachments very quickly. Okay. With those clients, you have to set some boundaries and kind of help pull back, right? Uh -huh. With the other clients, you're building trust so that they feel safe to open like up. They don't open up. They're like... Mm -hmm. 
only answer what you ask and that's it. Yeah. So both things are... They're both a trauma response. Oh, They're both a trauma okay. response. Either I'm going to be super, super protect protective and guarded or uh -huh. I'm going to be so open and exposed because I don't understand. I, both of them are just... Uh, uh, both of them are, yeah, from a trauma response. I The analogy that I use is... Let's say you and let's say you were going to a, a swimming pool and uh -huh. it's 70 degrees outside. So you're like, mm, water might feel cold. The people who trust easily and just overshare and open up right away, they then this used to be me, right? And I, I can still do it sometimes, but they'll go to the deep end and they'll just like flip and just jump in and go uh -huh. under. And then a lot of times you're like, oh, oh that was cold, right? Uh -huh. Woo! That was someone I couldn't trust, and I just exposed my whole life to them, and they didn't respond uh -huh. in a in. But, but they're so used to doing that and to not getting valuable feedback that they keep trying again and again, right? Uh -huh. Then there's also folks who are like, "Oh gosh, the water might be cold. I'm not even going to touch it," uh -huh. and they go over and sit in the chair on a towel. Yeah. What the healthy response is, and what we try to move our clients toward is, let's go to the zero entry. Uh -huh. Let's put our toes in. How does it feel? Okay, that felt okay. Maybe that's a, hey, how's your day going, right? Something simple. As you build trust, you're getting a little deeper and deeper into that water. And you figure out with every relationship you have in your life, how deep into the pool can I go with this person? Uh, I have some friends and acquaintances in my life who it's like, I'm only going to go knee deep with them. Yeah. I'll talk about certain things, but I'm not going to expose myself in any kind of vulnerable way because they're not somebody who will respond in a validating or um, empathizing way uh -huh. and then I've got those folks that I trust the most yeah. you know my best friend some of those close friends that you can swim laps in the deep end with them and yeah. there's a lot of trust there so you're teaching them that you don't jump to the <laughs> deep end right away you gotta measure and not everybody's right. the same not but then also the folks that want to sit on the sidelines that we want to help them get to a point where they can put their toes in the water and I and I tell them I said I understand why you're so guarded you have let people in and they have hurt you deeply. And so you want to lock up those walls, right? And I said, I'm just asking you, could you just crack open the window and let just a little bit of love in? Mm -hmm. let, let us care for you just a little bit and see how that feels. And if that feels good, if that feels healing, maybe you just open that window a little mm -hmm. bit more. Yeah. So you see people from when they're, when they're graduating, that must feel oh. amazing. So we have a graduation party in June and we celebrate everybody who's graduated in the last year. And for a lot of folks, this is the first time they put a graduation is hat on. Is that the cake gala? No, that, so that's our fundraiser. Okay, okay. And they used to kind of be celebrated there, but this is something separate now that's substance-free and they can, in, it, it feels more culturally um, uh, appropriate because uh -huh. it's something that's more, just, it's more casual. They kind of know what to expect. We're going to have a picnic in a park, play some yard games and- okay hand you a rose and give you a hug and eat some cake. Right. So mm -hmm. it just feels a, a little bit more emotionally safe for something social. Um, but yeah, I mean, so for a lot of them, this is the first time they've put a graduation hat on and, and I tell them, like I just did this year, I said, this is a bigger accomplishment than graduating from high yeah, school. Yes. Like think of all you've been through yeah. and that you made it to this day. The program is not easy. Yeah. Right. You have lived your life in a certain way and we're asking you to completely change your habits and, and your patterns and to grow as a human and to heal yourself and open yourself up to people. And that is no small like a feat. life milestone. Yeah. Life graduation, life uh, um, milestone. So you do a lot of things. Right. Like so you, you do speaking. Uh -huh. Yep. You are going to finish your my law uh, degree law will be degree. done in May. Yep. And you run the beacon. What else do you do <laughs> that we <laughs> should know about? What else do I do? Um, 
But you you you're a keynote speaker or you're a speaker. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about that about that and how did that come about? Well, that was one of my side hustles, honestly, when I was trying to get out of poverty was I started speaking and it's a fairly lucrative industry, but it's also a heavy lift to market it. So I was just getting rolling on it and then COVID hit. So uh -huh. I kind of stepped back a little bit and haven't been as proactive. And especially then when I started law school, mm -hmm. it kind of just became like it's there if someone wants it, but I'm I not going to go pursue um, gigs right now because having a full-time job and being a full-time student yes. and a single mom, right? So yeah. it's like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so um, what is the most of like your role where do you, where are you most effective like doing the fundraising or or um being and at the beacon and yes. being with the so i'm not doing a lot residents. of the direct client care so there's a socio-ecological model and in the center of it is the individual mm -hmm. and individual work that's what i used to do and as a therapist and while i don't mind hearing trauma and that doesn't burn me out one-on-one work does one-on-one -on -one work does not fill my bucket. So uh -huh. that's what burnt me out. And so I, but I need to hire people where that's their favorite spot right. is that middle circle yeah, because yeah, you yeah. want case managers who love to see individuals change, yeah. who thrive on seeing individuals change. I prefer to be further out on the socio-ecological model. So picture concentric circles and I'm further out and mine is more in the organizations uh -huh. and organization to organization collaboration. That's where my bucket gets full. Um, and so being able to change systems, for example, jail diversion, I get more fired up by I see. changing that system rather than working with an individual. Yeah. But it takes change at every single level in order to change communities. You have to have people working with individuals and you have to have people working in families and communities and um, uh, in organizations and laws and policies. All of those circles need addressed. If you had a magic wand, what would you like change or what would you create uh, to make this... Um, to make this society mm. you know, better, like in the within the the realm that you work in. Yeah, so I think there's this assumption that people who are poor are poor because they are morally less than in uh -huh. some way. Uh -huh. Either they're lazy, or they've made bad decisions, or um, they're just um, trying to cheat the system. You know, whatever it might be. And so I think to change people's perspective on that, and to help them understand that. People are typically in poverty because they grew up in it and they don't know where other paths are. And while there are some random individuals, some outliers who will figure out that path, most people do not unless they have someone to mentor them and show them that path or unless the systems change where we don't keep marginalizing communities, marginalized communities even further. And so... I think the first step is just education, just educating people on. So for example, when I do presentations, I do the ACEs test, adverse childhood experiences. Because if someone has a low score on the ACEs test, which most middle and upper class people do, they only have a 1% chance of experiencing homelessness in their lifetime. What is the ACEs test? Can you tell it? <laughs> so, I mean, you can Google it, but like it's, it's, there's a lot of questions. Things like, have you ever had a parent in prison? Was uh -huh. there physical violence in your home? Um, did you have, uh, did you lose a parent? Um, were you molested? So it's, it's all of these questions of childhood trauma. But the thing is, it's all things that happened to you uh -huh. and not things that you chose. Oh, yes, but yes, yet yes. they contribute to the rates of homelessness, the rates of incarceration. 
78% of people who are incarcerated have an ACEs score of four or higher compared to 15% of the general population, right? So that's, that is a really clear statistic that these, this childhood trauma is paving the way uh, to prison and uh, not because uh. of a choice that that child made. Right, they never had a choice. Things that happened to them, right? Yeah. And so, so I think the first step is just educating folks, which is what the Beacon has really focused on doing through our social media, through when I'm out and you know, speaking in the community, um, is to educate folks. That's step one. And then I think that then obviously the step two then is to redistribute resources and wealth. So we see the wage gap getting bigger and bigger, right? The poor are getting poorer and the rich are getting richer. I mean, COVID was just a perfect example of how, you know, most people came out of COVID in a worse financial position while the CEOs of these, you know, million dollar, billion dollar companies came out much richer. So uh, times of stress <laughs> that make that divide more clear. So, so there needs to be more accountability for corporations, for um, CEOs. That there needs to be taxes paid, right, from those folks. Because what's happening is the, um, they, they are accumulating more wealth and power, right? And it's having an impact on laws and policies that are being passed. And those are negatively impacting people in poverty. So we just keep pushing them to be more and more poor. And then they need more and more social services. And then we blame them more and more for being uh, poor and needing social services. Right. And it's like, well... Like, <laughs> It's like a vicious uh, cycle, almost like yeah. a vicious uh, system that uh, ins there's no way out. Yeah, and and you see this across the you see this around the world, right? Like it's it's you see this in countries where you think of it as a poor country, for example, but it's actually not a poor country. It's just that there is a really high percentage of really poor people, uh -huh. and then a very small percentage of very 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 rich people. And I'm not saying that everybody needs to have the same amount of money, not at all. Um, I'm just saying like people should be able to afford to put food on their table and uh -huh. a roof over their head right. and to get a backpack for their kid for school and to keep their electricity on. These are basic human needs living in America. Uh -huh. And it doesn't make sense to me that we think, well, pe those people should just be getting two jobs or going back to school uh, and working. That's not feasible when you're in poverty and you've got kids to take care of because then you've got m bigger childcare expenses and yeah. And on, on your research, uh, you, uh, because there's a disparity, right? Like this has affected more people of color. Yes. African-American. Can you talk yes. a little bit about the, the communities that are being affected the most? Yeah. So, So when the war on drugs happened um, a couple decades ago, it disproportionately impacted women and people of color because it really cracked down on those low-level offenses. Whereas we used to kind of just, you know, hey, that's their thing. Like now it's like, oh, you know, you're using this small amount of marijuana, right? Like, okay, lock them up, right? And what happened then is there was some, for example, if a person in Iowa gets pulled over, and this would have been a statistic from a few years ago, and they have marijuana in their vehicle. Um, they were eight times more like, likely to be arrested if they were black compared to white, even though it was the exact same offense. Uh -huh. um, and so what's happening then is this, this crackdown um, has really impacted women. We've seen the rate of incarcerated women go up by 300% in recent decades. And the in Iowa, 5%, of Iowa is black and 25% of Iowa's prisons are black. Now, 
black people don't commit more crimes than white people. It's just they're more likely to be arrested, charged, convicted, and have longer sentences. That's that's what people don't want to believe, too, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's sometimes some people uh, say it's not all about race. You know, <laughs> not everything is about race. Um, but it's hard to find things that, are not, that aren't, you know, mm -hmm. even in real estate. If you look at real estate, the redlining. Yes. Uh, so it's, it's uh, and this is another example of, of, uh, of people unwillingness to understand like that there's a chain reaction to what the system has created mm -hmm. that ultimately somehow african-american latinos or minorities mm -hmm. are affected more than, mm -hmm. than whites huh. but but it's uh but it's hard to make them understand and mm -hmm. the reason why i was uh, really excited to talk to you is because like the presentation that you did, like you also talked about the 13th Amendment. Yeah. And so how did you introduce the 13th Amendment into your presentation <laughs> to make it a point? Because it was two minutes and it was like, <laughs> you, know, you left a mark there. People were like, oh. <laughs> You're like it's your money. Um, so tell me about that. How, did you, how do you go about picking the right information to get the point across? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I honestly just think it's something that most people haven't researched and mm -hmm. my thesis was on this the history of incarceration <clears throat> in the united states and um just looking at so we had you know obviously we had slavery um when when we were um first becoming the united states and what when in the 13th amendment it f it ended slavery except uh -huh. in cases of um, when folks were incarcerated so what happened was what used to be slave code became, it was what was called black code. Uh -huh. So when you were a slave, you could be, you know, beaten, punished, um, corporal punishment, if you did all of these certain things. And some of them were incredibly subjective. <laughs> I don't like the look that you made or your attitude or your tone of voice or your how fast you're working. Like very particular things and uh -huh. very subjective. So m maybe I'm just, I'm on a power trip today, uh -huh. um, which I mean, if you have slaves, that's you pretty much are every day, but, uh -huh. um, and so I'm going to, you know, punish you. I'm going to take it out on you because I think maybe you were doing something I didn't like or that became black code. So now if you did any of those things as a black person, you could be arrested. That wasn't true for white people. Uh -huh. So, so you don't like that look that that black person just made. And when you were walking down the street, get him arrested. Right. Or whistle like yeah. Till. Yeah. And like, and, and, you know, because racism was just so ingrained in, in, in our country's history at that point, like you could see whatever you wanted to see, or you could just completely make something up. Mm -hmm. And then we're mass incarcerating black people because now there's this workforce that's gone when slavery is abolished. And so trying to recreate that workforce for the, to serve the economy, I mean, it's a very self-centered pursuit. Um, and so then, you know, basically then black people were incarcerated and then put into this forced labor, which was almost worse than slavery in a lot of ways because at least slave owners, they wanted to keep their slaves like somewhat in good health because that was their workforce. Whereas the, the criminal justice system necessarily they didn't necessarily own them. So there was, wasn't quite as much connection there. And so uh -huh. they were just treated horribly. Okay. Now take that down to the next generation, right? So if your dad got hauled away to prison and you're not really sure why and now you're a kid growing up without a dad right okay you become at some point you become incarcerated right your kids like this is generational trauma uh -huh. and 
at what point do we say, hey, there needs to be some restoration done um, for families that have been negatively impacted by these systems? Like uh-huh. you can't expect generation after generation to receive undeserved punishment and incarceration and then the adverse health impacts and mental health impacts of that and then just expect them to just bounce back and recover. It doesn't uh-huh. work that way. You can't be making too many friends when you say this type of stuff, right? Like, there's, you got to have some people cringing when you're saying it. Sure. But you know what happens, though, is the people that get it are that much more invested in it. So, yeah, you do. You, you have some people that are annoyed or don't want to hear it. And, that, and that's, that's okay. I'm, I'm not for everybody. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but what I hope is that people will at least entertain the idea that maybe there's something to it that uh-huh. maybe people in poverty don't actually want to be in poverty and aren't actually bad people. Because I tell you what, Amner, those women at the Beacon work harder than in, in than most middle and upper class women uh-huh. that I know. When we come to open the doors in the morning at 4.30 a.m., we have half the house at the door waiting to go out the door and get on the bus to get to work. Mm-hmm. Because their shift starts at 6 o'clock and they have an hour bus ride, mm-hmm. right? They do their shift hard labor, whatever it might be, they're doing hard work. And then they ride the bus for an hour home. And then they go to their recovery meetings, their mental health counseling appointments. They work on their finances. They meet with their parole officer. They meet with the case manager. They are working so hard and want something more for themselves so badly. But they're starting at such a, a disadvantage, right? Like they have, a lot of them have a GED or, um, maybe just a little bit of college or something. Right. And they've got mounting debt, Um, And then when you have to go through the criminal justice system, obviously that debt increases. And so they're trying to climb out of a really deep hole with not very much income. And so, gosh, you will never see a harder working group of people than you Uh will find at the Beacon. And what's interesting is that, um, you know, some people go to prison for nine nonviolent crimes. Mm -hmm. um, And then when they get uh, parole or when they get released, for them to succeed is all also a mountain to climb just yeah. to to not go back yeah. because of all the requirements that they have to oh. they have to get. Oh yeah. They can't oh, get yeah. employed because they have the background now. Mm-hmm. 60 per, now, yeah, 60% job? of jobs aren't available to you if you have a felony charge. That's crazy. You can't get government subsidized housing. Right. Like there's so many have, things stacked against you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How do you I mean you're in the you're this is What's your vision? Like, what's a what would be um, in a utopia? <laughs> <laughs> what what would it look like for people to? You pay your dues to society, right? But do and you really you owe? Did, do you really owe dues if you have a substance use disorder? True. That's, <laughs> so you're you're taking it before that, right? Uh, like, to, uh, I uh, mean, <laughs> the, our our criminal justice system has become a mental health institution, a substance use treatment facility. And it's really bad at both of those things. Uh, But we hide our social problems, uh, right? Okay, I don't want to see it. Lock them up. I don't have to see it. I don't have to think about how many people are actually in poverty right now. How many people need mental health support? There are people, lots of women in prison today that cannot be released because there is literally nowhere to release them to. They uh, might have schizophrenia, um, dissociative identity disorder, and they don't have a friend or family that wants to take them, and there's no facility for them to go. So they're literally living out the rest of their life in prison with their mental illness. They're getting locked up in the isolation box by themselves for most of the day every day because they're just not getting the support that they need. I can't sleep at night when I think about that. Yeah, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. So the 
how big do you want uh, do you envision the beacon getting uh uh or what would yeah like uh because wouldn't it be fine just financially wise for the state yes 26 dollars to 106 <laughs> the goal would be to eventually be a line item on the budget uh-huh so reduce yeah. the prison budget yeah. increase budget for places like the beacon what are the odds of that happening mm. <laughs> you're an entrepreneur you dream big right yeah but you have to right yeah but don't doesn't it feel like a like a unwinnable battle sometimes to Some you? Days. do you feel do Some you days. doubt it what do you do when you doubt when i doubt ooh. when doubt creeps in oh that's a good question uh i let myself sit in it uh-huh. i don't feel like i have to rush through it and try to like go into the space of denial and tell myself oh everything's okay nothing's uh-huh. hard we got this right uh-huh. but like sitting in it same you would with grief um disappointment uh-huh. frustration like to to allow yourself to feel the feeling uh-huh. and work through it and it, it seems like those things pass after a while right you have some sort of success happen or you get a new grant or you get a new uh, building or funder or something or you hear a client story and something like pops you out of it and just reminds you of your why uh-huh. you know how can uh Anybody that's listening, you know, maybe there's some big time CEO or some body <laughs> with a lot of money or that. How can they help you then? Just. Yeah. So, yeah, there's there's a place on our website to donate or to fill out a volunteer application. My email address is on there. Director at the You could email me directly. Um, lots of ways to get involved. We do Saturday night socials. So folks from the community come in and do games and activities with the clients. It's a great way for them to connect um, you know, in with folks that are in other socioeconomic classes, and I think there's a lot of destigmatizing that happens because the volunteers a lot of times are like, "Oh, uh-huh. they're just like me." Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. I've had people ask me if I'm scared to go to work. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, because they yeah because they they picture like this like these violent women. I, I don't know, and it's yeah. fine. Like I get it. We all have to bust those stereotypes at some point in our life. So no judgment, right? Um, but no, it's it's actually. there's a lot of laughter that happens at the beacon we my motto is simultaneously taking life seriously and not at all and this (laughs) i know you kind of briefly touched on a little bit of your backstory but let's talk a little bit about like how because you don't do this with this type of energy and with this type of optimism and like outlook and like passion without also i mean i think you're sympathetic to your uh mission because of your path of the your path mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. uh, so if you don't want to you don't have to but uh, you were in a very uh s- tough situation to say the least uh, in your marriage uh-huh. tell us about that to, to so people understand like why you are <laughs> in this path or in this mission so i've always been a really passionate and ambitious person mm-hmm. and time management comes really easy to me for whatever reason and so um it's just that my ambition and my passion were pointed at things that were not as productive to society. <laughs> and so the more I grow, the more I figure out like where to laser focus that passion. Uh-huh. Cause it's a lot, I know the energy ball, it's like a lot, right? <laughs> but it's gotta be directed at the right thing yeah. or else you can do, I've done a lot of damage in the past, uh-huh. just plowed over people with ideas that were harmful and uh-huh. beliefs that were harmful. Right. And so, um, I mean, I used to be for until I was like in my thirties, um, you know, anti-LGBTQ. I did not think race was still an issue. Like one of the folks that would be in denial about inequities in the Uh, world, right? uh, I was very much attached to the meritocracy mindset. And so 
there was a lot of deconstruction that had to happen around my belief system. And what, what happened when I went through the divorce and my paradigm shift, my paradigm just really shifted to a, one of um, empathy and then a pursuit of equity. Um, and yeah, and so you asked about, you know, my marriage. Yeah, it was really difficult. Um, but it wasn't the like black eye bruises, go to the ER kind of domestic violence, right? Which is what people picture. Uh-huh. And then I think a lot of people don't identify that they're in domestic violence because if it's minimizing, invalidation, um, uh, turning the tables, gaslighting, uh, silent treatment, those kinds of things might not necessarily identify that as domestic violence. Um, but over time, that certainly has a lot of power to um, <clears throat> just sort of deconstruct someone's feelings of self-worth. Yeah, okay. And, um, you know, over time, you just kind of lose your sense of self and you become wrapped up in trying to manage this other person's emotions uh-huh. so that you don't have to take um, the hit for it, right? And so so while there was some physical and, and certainly there was um, some financial and sexual abuse happening and those things were also harmful the bulk of it was sort of this like mental um emotional Mm. piece and it's really hard to put your finger on it when it's more of the like what i call the quiet domestic violence okay it's hard to explain it to people you just have this feeling that something's off you don't feel valued your needs are not met you don't feel heard um everything centers around your partner's needs Mm -hmm. and dreams and desires and so for example like if I was sick, automatically I had a need that was mostly unavoidable. Um, and so, like, I can remember, um, you know, being sick one day and being home with the four kids and um, really sick. And, and I said, hey, can you go pick up some lunch for us? And that was a big deal for me to ask because I was used to, like, taking care of everything, right? Uh-huh. And so he had left and he was upset because we would had a party the night before. And so he was kind of giving me the silent treatment and upset about that. And he left with one of the kids and came back six hours later with no lunch. And he'd bought a Corvette because it was (laughs) here like, uh, yeah, (laughs) because it's, it was, it, it bothered him so much that I had a need and that I had made a choice that he didn't like, right. Having the party the night before. And this was a party with our international students. So it was like, like a service kind of like helping them out. Right. And so, um, he, he didn't like that because he didn't like people. And, um, so this was kind of his way of like punishing me emotionally. Uh Um, and so I said, well, where did you get the money to buy this Corvette? And he said, well, I used, (laughs) he said, well, I used the money that we were going to use to hire a business manager. And so I'm like, well, we just bought another business. Like, we need a business manager. Like, how are you going to run two businesses that you're also working in? Like, so it, it was a, a decision that really negatively impacted our family mm-hmm. and me Yeah. because then he's seldom home and we don't have this business manager. So I'm helping with paperwork and you know, all these right. different things. Um, and so, but, but it all stemmed from the fact that um, his needs needed to stay central and that if I had a need that was problematic. So, mm. yeah. So, what would you tell someone so you would you would be a survivor right of domestic uh-huh. violence so what would you tell somebody that's um that's in that situation mm-hmm. and also what would you tell somebody that um comes from uh, 
trauma and has a mm. substance abuse, mm -hmm. what advice would you give them? Mm. First of all, you have value. And your value is not based in your performance, but your value is based in this unchanging, intrinsic value that you have just because you're human. Mm. And trauma tends to communicate to us that we don't have value. And so I think the first place is to really focus on being kind to yourself. I remember my therapist telling me that at the end of my sessions, be kind to yourself. Mm. And that was one of the hardest things in the world to do is learning to love myself. Um, and being authentic, right? Like owning your story. There are parts of my story where I made ugly choices and I said ugly things, right? And I need to acknowledge those and own those so that I can heal, but also know that none of those things caused domestic violence or caused the trauma that happened to me. Um, and then also to find a support system. And if you don't have a friend who treats you with unconditional positive regard, find a professional who does. Have someone in your life that when you can picture in your head that the feeling you have when you talk to them is a feeling of support and love and healing and care. And if you don't have that feeling, if when you talk to them, you walk away with this kind of pit in your stomach, that's not the right person. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So I think we can talk about this forever and ever and <laughs> ever, but the, the organization that you run is the beacon uh -huh. of... Hope, right? Well, is that what it's called? It used to be called Beacon of Life. We rebranded. Re what is it? We rebranded to the Beacon. We've just made so many changes. And so a couple years ago, just did a rebrand to kind of represent some of those internal changes. So. And I just, I, I, I cannot help, and I'm sure you know, people that watch and listen um, won't be able to help but to uh, feel your energy. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I, I, I feel like I can't picture anybody else doing this type of because if you're not if you don't approach it this way then you're just a you know you're going to be bitter and stressed and mm. sad and you know so mm. i kind of want to uh, um commend you and congratulate you for having this approach to this work and it's important work you know you, you make you're making big uh uh impact on people's lives this issue is is close to my heart because i have a nephew that um Uh, just got released from, mm. from prison. And as a family, we're doing our best to uh, help him clear those hurdles that otherwise other people um, don't have, you know. Um, you know, just transportation, basic, right? Like yeah. housing, transportation, work, how yeah. to get to work, yeah. ID and all this stuff. And, and, um, yeah. um, and we're just, you know, it's like, everybody four adults and <laughs> and a bunch of you know uh, uh young adults that are we're all like teaming up to make yes. sure that he he has the support but i can i can't help to think about people that don't have it mm -hmm. you're like oh man like yeah like, just think about all the things you have to do if you get out of prison yeah you can't just go get a job you don't even have an id you don't yes. have health care set up you don't like there are so many steps before you can even get a job right And then you still gotta go to meet your probation officer, do some mandatory. And tests, you have no money, stuff. and you have to yeah. get on the bus, and you don't like. How do you get bus tokens? Yeah, and then your job, if you get one, somehow, uh -huh. how much does it pay? Yeah, right. Because you you just said you have only sixty sixty percent of the jobs are not available to you, right? Because you're a felon. So, yeah, it's just all these hurdles. I'm just like, man, what if we were not here? You know, yeah. What what would his his yes. path look like? And and you can picture 
why it'd be so easy to fall back into the same uh-huh. patterns because there's so much stress and anxiety right when you're released. So what's so people go back because it's just kind of like, I got to get some money. I'm going to go steal it's, something. And I, I'm so, I'm so overwhelmed, right? Yeah. And you, I, I used to picture in my naivete and privilege that someone being released from prison would have this huge feeling of like freedom and relief. Uh-huh. But the primary emotion, when I ask my clients, their primary emotion is anxiety. Yes, because it's the... I have to a new world. I have no money. Are my kids going to talk to me? Where am I going to live? How am I going to get a job? How am I going to pay for anything? Right. (sighs) That's not even talking about like the trauma that was created in prison. Yes. Because you're like in a eight by or 10 by 10. Yeah, there a lot of our, like clients are institutionalized. If they were in prison for a long time, they walk in squares. They they have a hard time with having space and openness and Uh. and we've got clients who um, have been incarcerated because they maybe they killed a partner in self-defense uh. and then took a plea deal because they weren't sure they could afford a good enough lawyer to fight it for self-defense. So they took uh, a deal where they had to spend a few years in prison uh-huh. after being victimized by domestic violence to the point that they had to kill their partner to stay right. alive. Yeah. And now we're going to lock them up for five years. Uh-huh. Make it make sense. Yeah. So thank you for what you're doing with your nephew, though. I mean, yeah. that's that's really cool. It's like you're doing like a mini beacon. Yeah, we're just trying to help, you know, um just be the support system that other people wouldn't have. And it's just it's you know, he's he's very grateful and he's Aww. you know, staying straight and but you know, you can't help to think of like, man, there's people that oh, don't yeah. have it. So And so you see his potential, right? Yeah. You can see it, yes, right? Yes, yes. And then yeah. once you see it, then they start to see it themselves. Yes. And then that's the yes. that's a success. You so, hit right on it. Exactly. Yeah. So volunteering, donating, mm-hmm. you have the cake uh gala cake, cake coming out. Up. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's a fundraiser. Yep. So but people can go to the website. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it? Beacon. The beacondm.org. Beacon, the beacondm.org. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah. volunteer. Yeah. The, uh, you, some people like to do like a supply drive. So we have a list of supplies you could do and do a donation drive at your workplace or with your friends. Um, some people like to create care packages for new clients. There's a list of items to put in yeah. them. There's all kinds of different ways. If you want to, you know, add to our endowment fund, if you want to put us in your will, um, mm-hmm. lots of different ways. To stay connected. And give you a couple million dollars. What would you oh, of course. <laughs> I could probably find something to do. With. More buildings. But that's the More. thing with us is because I've been in poverty and I learned how to be frugal, right? Like we lived on $50 a week for groceries for me and four boys. I mean. <laughs> Make those $50. <laughs> I can do just about anything with yeah. someone's money, right? Like. You know, like if you give to the beacon, you can trust that we are going to make a very, very strategic use of those dollars. And that's how we were able to get to the point where we are. When I got there, we cut our operating expenses by 20%, put it into staff compensation. Our staff pay increased by 43% in the first year of entry and mid-level staff. And then we added 100% medical insurance, right? That's, I mean, when you pay your people well, you get best of the best and you don't have turnover and you have really high quality services. I would so much rather that than have the constant turnover and constant training and constant hiring. And, um, that that's exhausting on an organization. So you can trust that this is an organization that will do good work that will continue to push for what's evidence-based practice, what's cutting edge, the best way to do this work. Um, and that we get results. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Melissa, for joining us. Uh, now I know whenever I need a jolt of energy, I'm going to call you. <laughs> you know, I don't even drink coffee. 
I've never drank coffee before. This is, this is all you, natural. I usually give people <laughs> coffee, but then I'm like, I'm not giving her any <laughs> She needs a sedative. <laughs> well, thank you again. I really appreciate it. Oh, this was so fun. Yes, thank yes, you so yes. much. All right. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Infinite Resources, a local staffing agency connecting diverse job candidates and central Iowa companies. Amplified.